Hey, good morning, Sanctus. So glad that you're joining us once again or for the first time. If you're here in Ontario or the GTA or maybe you're tuning in from Canada, somewhere in our country, maybe you're in the States or in England or Australia or somewhere else in the world, no matter who you are, where you're coming from, we're so glad that you're joining us today. Now, we're in the middle of this series where we're systematically, intentionally slowing down to wrestle down unbelief and doubt and skepticism and deconstruction, which by the way means 5,000 things to 5,000 people, and the Christian faith. So if you're a long-term Christian, you're welcome. If you just crossed the line of faith, you're welcome. If you're curious and seeking, you're welcome. If you're an outright skeptic, you're welcome. Now, again, the goal of this series is to help all of us find the signpost to begin the journey, do well on the journey, to keep going on the journey, not to get lost in the middle of the journey or shipwrecked and arrive at the right destination and do that for others. Now, today, we're really going to start wrestling down the intellectual side of the Christian faith. See, we got to catch this again. Faith is not blind leaping in the dark. Faith, by definition for Christians, is informed trust fact and encounter and faith has this implication of relationship and here's the simple thing everything boils down to this did Jesus exist did Jesus actually die and did Jesus physically come back from the dead because that's the ball game Years ago when I preached a version of this, I told this story. I love Swiss Chalet fries. Now, some of you outside of Ontario have no clue what I'm talking about. Uh, but just think about the best food you like. Now, I love these fries. I think they're amazing. They're God-given. It's one thing that I know the fries exist. It's another thing for me to see advertisements about those fries. It's another thing for me to hear other people talk about those fries and how good they are. It's another thing to stand outside of the restaurant called Swiss Chalet and press my face against the window and watch someone eat those fries, which, by the way, would be creepy and the cops would show up. It's a whole other thing for me to walk into the restaurant. We can do that now. Go into a restaurant and see people eating the fries and smell the fries. Ah, but it's a whole other thing when I sit at the table and I get the fries and I dip them in the sauce that Jesus himself has invented called Swiss Chalet sauce and put it in my mouth and taste it. See, that's actually the trajectory and the journey of what we're talking about in this series. There are two avenues of genuine knowledge, fact and encounter. And it's all around Jesus. Now, C.S. Lewis, the famed atheist who became a Christian as a scholar, after he read everything Jesus said about himself, said this, Jesus is either a megalomaniac, pathologically mistaken, a liar, or valid since Jesus is claiming not merely to say true things, although that is so, but claiming to be ultimate truth itself. Jesus claimed to be equal with God and claimed to be God, claimed he could forgive sins, claimed that he existed before he was born, claimed he was the only way back to God, promised eternal life, and supposedly physically rose from the dead. And unlike all the other great leaders or history figures, he paired outrageous claims with humility, love, care, and barrier-breaking that actually in many ways has never been repeated again. You, you can't remain neutral on the teachings, claims, and actions of Jesus. 
Either Jesus did not physically arise from the dead, and if he didn't, then he's a good man or a prophet or a political revolutionary, and he just got killed for standing up or being lazy or a liar or crazy or fill in whatever you want to say about him. But if he did rise from the dead, ah, everything changes. I wrote this years ago. If Jesus rose from the dead, atheism is answered. If Jesus rose from the dead, agnosticism resolved. If Jesus rose from the dead, every religion and every philosophic system on earth has to reevaluate, reevaluate itself at its core. If Jesus rose from the dead, death is answered, and we know what lives be, lies beyond the grave because someone actually came back and told us. If Jesus rose from the dead, the human family does not need to ask, is there God, and what is God like? Is he involved? And if Jesus rose from the dead, then you can actually meet God. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then there might be purpose beyond life, sex, money, power, morality, religiosity, or control. Oh, and if Jesus rose from the dead, the coffin or the cremation fire actually is in your end. Let's begin our conversation. It's around 53 to 55 AD, 20 years after the Jesus event. And a man named Paul, who used to be against Jesus, and he actually was at the murder of the very first Christian, writes this to an early Christian community. 1 Corinthians 15.3. For what I receive, I pass on to you as first or chief importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of our brothers and sisters at the same time. Most who are still living, some have died. And then he appeared to James, then all the other apostles. And last, he appeared also to me. Do you see it? The Christian faith... The foundation of it is rooted in testimony. People saying, I was there. This is not fairy tale. This is not conspiracy. This is not fake news. This is not myth. It's real. Now, most scholars, by the way, believe that Paul had these interviews, which he bases the above on, when he visited Jerusalem three years after his personal encounter with Jesus. This means that Paul learned everything I just said between two and eight years after Jesus' crucifixion. He met with the disciples personally. He interviewed them. Now, if you've ever studied history, most of us haven't. But if you have studied history formally, you know what I just said is massive. And this actually stands out in the realm of history more than most. Again, let's not forget Paul's works were letters designed to be publicly read. They weren't private correspondence. And there were multiple copies written in his lifetime that would be sent to Jerusalem and beyond. It would have easily been dismissed if people said, no, that's not true. And I was in that interview. That's lie. That was wrong. That was invented. But they weren't. Now, Paul keeps going and he raises the stakes. If Christ has not been dead, uh, has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that, that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not, if he did not raise him in the fact that the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And then all those who have died in Christ are lost. And only for this life, if we hope in Christ, we of all people should be most pitied. See, this is an all or nothing deal. This is a total sum game. Catch this. We as Christians unashamedly root ourselves in history and not myth. And why don't we run from history? Because we believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is an actual accessible historic fact. Years ago, I was flipping through uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. He's a famous scholar, but he's an atheist fundamentalist. And he wrote this. He says, no one knows the who the four evangelists were, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. 
They are almost certainly never met Jesus personally. Much of what they wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history. The Gospels are ancient fiction. Around that same time, I was on YouTube and I was watching John Lennox, who's a world-class philosopher mathematician uh, from, I believe, Oxford or Cambridge. And he was debating R Richard Dawkins. Back and forth they went. Is there a God? And can he be known? And what about human value and morality and eternal life? And then like a thunderbolt, John Lennox just sort of moved to the side and looked at Richard and said, Richard, you don't understand because you don't understand how to handle history. In other words, his point is, this isn't a scientific experience experiment that you redo in a lab. This is history, and you don't have a clue what you're talking about when it comes to history. See, there are four simple steps that historians tell us that you need to verify and access history. Here's how one person said. You need multiple independent sources. Independent sources. Number two, you're looking when enemies support the historical claim. It's one thing if your friend or family or mother or father or sympathizers or those who can make money off what you're saying go, oh, it's true and they're amazing and it's all amazing. Yeah, but when enemies start saying, oh, that happened, but it was wrong or that happened and I got questions, that's when you pay attention. So you got multiple independent sources, enemies supporting historic claims. The third thing is eyewitness accounts, of course, are stronger than secondhand accounts. Less exaggeration, less times to build a lie, doesn't corrupt things as much. And also you're always, number four, looking for embarrassing admissions of the person or people and cultural nuances that support the historical claims. So the question is, when we talk about did Jesus exist, life, death, resurrection, do these four things show up? Oh, yes, they do. But before we get there, before we deal with Jesus' death and resurrection, the real question some of you are asking is, but did Jesus actually exist? So let me ask you a counter question. Do you think that Plato and Caesar existed? One person said, you know, Plato wrote his works from 427 to 347 BC. And the earliest manuscript we have today of Plato's writing was written in 900 AD. That's 1,200 years after Plato's death. And we only have two of those manuscripts. And yet everybody says, of course Plato exists. And of course is Really? Julius Caesar, of course, one of the most celebrated and trusted historical figures. He lived from 100 to 44 BC. And he wrote some very, uh, very famous book. And the earliest manuscript we have of his writing is 982, which is 1,000 years after his death. We only have 10 copies of Caesar's Gaelic Wars. So if you hear people on the internet or you yourself question the Bible based on when it's written, and oh, it's been translated so many times. You'll hear Muslims say this. It's translated so many times. It, it was not. We have the same Greek manuscripts today. And then you question, did Jesus exist? Then you start, need to start asking, well, did Julius Caesar exist? And did Plato exist? Or are they just fictional characters too? So many people say you can't use the Bible in the conversation. And this author says, well, why not? The four Gospels are biographical accounts of Jesus. And the normal objective measure of reliability when it comes to historic things is, one, the number of available copies of ancient manuscripts. And two, the time span between the original one and the copies we still have today. Now, you ready for this? This is important. The earliest man manuscripts we have, the fragments of the New Testament, are the John Ryland fragment, the Chester Betty, or Beatty papyrus, and the Bodmer papyrus. They were written in 50 to 100 AD. Copies of these were written in 125 to 200 AD, meaning the time spent between the original and the copies is 29 years to 130 years. 
and a 50 years to 100 years after the Jesus event. Way closer than almost anything else we've got. All the original Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written 35 to 60 years after the Jesus event. Mark was written before 70 AD, which is 40 years after Jesus' death. So don't be quick to throw it all out. They're so close. And actually, you might not know this. There is 5,800 Greek uh, fragments or full manuscripts. There's 10,000 in Latin and 9,300 in other languages. It's the most documented historic book in history. Ah, but let's still ask the question. Did Jesus live? Did Jesus die on the cross? And is there any evidence that he was even buried? Well, first of all, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about it all the time. But the real question is, did anyone outside of the Bible talk about it? Did anyone who was not a Christian, who did not believe, but is trustworthy, say, oh, yeah, Jesus existed, or yeah, he was killed, or he was buried? Oh, so many people. Josephus is the first one. He lived from 37 to 100 AD. He's a Jewish guy who was a Roman historian, and he actually was an expert. He wrote about the first Jewish-Roman war and the destruction of the temple in 70 uh, AD. Now, his most important works are the Jewish war and antiquity of the Jews. He, he talked about the revolt of the Jews against the Roman occupation. Now, Josephus was a Jew. He did not believe in Jesus. He did not believe in Christianity, but in his book, The Antiquity of the Jews, book 18, chapter 3, <laughs> paragraph 3, he said, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it's even lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over him both Jews and non-Jews, and he was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had him condemned to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them again alive on the third day as the divine prophets had foretold, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians named from him are not extinct to this day. There was a guy named Cornelius Tactius, who was a Roman historian who lived from 55 to 120 AD. This is him talking about Nero. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of hated, a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Jesus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our proconsuls. Pontius Pilate. There's a guy named Lucian of Samosat. He was a well-known Greek satirist, a comedian and lecturer. He has 80 books connected to his name, and he regularly made fun of Christians in this time period. But listen to what he said. He was second only to that one who they still worship today, that man in Palestine who was crucified because he brought this new form of initiation into the world. At another point, he says, having convinced themselves that they are immortal and will live forever, those poor wretches despised death and most willingly gave themselves to it. He's talking about Christians. Moreover, that first lawgiver of theirs persuaded them that they're all brothers the moment they transgress and deny the Greek gods and began worshiping that crucified sophist, like wisdom giving and, and living by his laws. There's another guy named Mara Bar uh, 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 sorry, Seraphion. He is a Stoic philosopher from Syria. And he wrote a letter that most scholars date around 73 AD. And he actually was complaining about the unjust treatment of three famed people, Socrates, uh, 
Pythagoras and then Jesus. He says, what advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after their kingdom was abolished. And it's this direct reference to Jesus's crucifixion. Now, there's another thing in Jewish context called the Talmud, which is the ancient record of Jewish history, laws, and the rabbinical, the pastoral teaching compiled throughout the centuries. And there are multiple references to Jesus there. Here's two of them. Jesus the Nazarene was hung or hanged, and, was a, and a herald went forth uh, before him 40 days heralding. Another one, but since they did not find anything in his defense, they hanged him a Sabbath eve and on the eve of the Passover. And then, so you've got Greeks, and you've got Romans, and you've got uh, religious Jews, and you've got non-religious Jews, and then, of course, all the original witnesses actually did believe Jesus died, was alive, and rose again. They all claimed it. I love when one person wrote this. Listen in. There are nine early independent sources that make up the biblical accounts. You have Paul and his interviews with the original disciples. You have the oral tradition passed down in the early church, all within 20 years. And then you have the written work of the early church. Now, some of you are saying, well, those are ancient people and they're stupid and they don't know the difference between a lie and myth and history and fiction. Not true. Actually, you're the chronological snob in this conversation. Major work has been done in the area of history and anthropology that shows that actually ancient people absolutely knew the difference between fiction, myth, and historical accounts. I love Timothy Keller's little book, Reason for God, where he summarizes another person uh, named R Richard Buckingham who wrote this huge book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And Richard Buckingham, he writes, marshals much historical evidence to demonstrate that at the time the Gospels were written, there were still numerous, listen, well-known living eyewitnesses to Jesus's teaching and life events. They committed them to memory. They remained active in the public life of the church throughout their lifetimes, serving as ongoing sources and guarantors of truth to those accounts. Now, Buckingham uses evidence within the gospels themselves to show that the gospel writers name their eyewitness sources within the text to assure the readers that the account was authentic. Here's an example. Mark says that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross in Calvary was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Mark 15, 21. Now, there is no reason, he writes, for the author to include such names unless the readers know or could access them. Mark is saying, Alexander and Rufus, vouch for the truth I'm telling you. And if you doubt it, just go ask them. They're still alive. Paul also appeals to readers to check with living eyewitnesses if they want to actually establish the truth of what he's saying connected to Jesus's life. Paul refers to a body of 500 eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ at once. You can't write a document designed for public reading 2,000 years ago unless you were, unless, <clears throat> unless there really were surviving witnesses whose testimony agreed and could confirm what the author said. All this decisively refutes the idea that the gospels are anonymous or a, a collection of evolving oral traditions. Instead, these are oral histories taken down from the mouth of living witnesses who preserve the words of de deeds of Jesus in great detail. And don't forget this. It's not only Jesus's supporters that are alive. All the bystanders and all the officials and all the opponents who had heard him teach and he, they had argued with him and seen his actions and watched him die. They were there. They could charge at any time. This is all fabricated. This is all not true. But I love how Tim, Kel Teller, Tim Keller summarizes this. For a highly, listen, for a highly altered fictional account of an event to take hold in the public imagination, 
it is necessary that the eyewitnesses and their children and their grandchildren are all long dead. They must be off the scene so they cannot contradict or debunk the embellishments or falsehoods in the story. The Gospels are written far too soon for that to happen. I love when another person said the appearance narratives in the Gospels provide multiple independent uh, proofs of his appearances. For example, the appearance to Peter is attested by Luke and Paul. The appearance of the twelve is attested by Luke and John and Paul. The appearance to the women is attested by Matthew and John. The appearance narrative spans such a breadth of independent sources that it cannot be reasonably denied that the earliest disciples did have some experience. Thus, even the skeptical German New Testament critic, Gerard Lutman, concludes this, and he's a hardcore critic. It may be taken, taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. The history just forces you there. This deals with the idea of biased testimony. Now, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, the resurrection gospel accounts also have embarrassing details, enemy admissions, and, and cultural nuance. It's all there. Now, now, don't forget, all the original followers were all fearful. They all ran away from Jesus. They all abandoned Jesus. They cussed Jesus out. They, they, they wanted nothing to do with them. And then they claimed to see him. They claimed to eat with him. They claimed to hug him and touch him, be forgiven by him. And then suddenly they become bold preachers after his death and resurrection. And the vast majority of them are jailed, tortured, exiled, or murdered. It is clear they really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they kept telling others. Oh, and by the way, that leads us to the last three people maybe you've never heard of. There's a guy named Clement. There's a guy named Polycarp, and there's a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. Now, Clement was the bishop of Rome, and he lived from 30 to 98 AD. He was murdered in 98 AD for being a Christian. He knew the original disciples. He spoke of them. And as you read his stuff that's still around today, he regularly confessed, believed, and historically supported the idea of Jesus' existence, his death, and his resurrection. He was born just around the time that Jesus started his ministry. There's a guy named Ignatius of Antioch who became the bishop of Antioch. He was appointed to his position by Peter, who was one of Jesus' original disciples. He also had connections with Paul and John. He was arrested by the Romans and he was murdered, executed in 100 AD for being a Christian. And yet all his writings and all his preaching was all based on the physical resurrection of Jesus. Polycarp knew the apostles. He was taught by them. He personally knew and was appointed by John. Remember, John is Jesus' closest friend. John wrote the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Gospel of John. Polycarp ends up being murdered at 86 years old for being a Christian. And he speaks all the time about Jesus living, dying, and physically rising from the dead. These three men, who are not in the Bible, had access to the original community and the original apostles and Paul himself and verified what they were also claiming. 
I love a, a guy named Paul uh, Mayer, who's the former professor of ancient history at Michigan Western University, who simply says the total evidence is so overpowering and so absolute that only the shallowest of intellects would dare deny Jesus's existence. Notice, there's more historical proof here than multiple other historical personalities or books. And you just presume they all existed and believe they happened. There are multiple sources, enemies, eyewitnesses, embarrassing details, and the time span between the original version of events and the original copies and the copies we have today is within 50 to 150 years, which is way closer than anything else in history. You know, it was interesting. It's the late New Testament critic, Norman Purin, who himself rejected the resurrection of Jesus as a fact. He spent his whole life studying the New Testament and did not believe it. But here's what he did right. The more we study the tradition with regard to the appearances, that's Jesus' risen appearances, the firmer the rock begins to appear on which they are based. The longer you sit with the scriptures and the longer you sit with real history and the longer you sit with all the sources, you can't deny Jesus existed. And you can't deny that maybe the Bible has some authenticity. And actually, you begin to find out that wild, outrageous claims like Richard Dawkins are just not true. Okay, how does this help us? Well, first of all, for some of us who are, we're in, we're followers of Jesus, we love Jesus, we're connected to him, this encourages us that, no, we're not crazy. No, this is not myth. No, this is not made up. And what I've based my life on is trustworthy. This helps us keep going. Now, some of you, you are Christians, but you're about to leave the Christian faith, or you're struggling to stay in the Christian faith, or... <laughs> You're like, man, I, I like Jesus, but no, nothing else. Well, this again really brings home how central this all is and how real this is. And I think it actually forces you into sort of a, a corner. <laughs> Even if you leave and go away, if Jesus rose from the dead, like if he really existed, he really died, he really rose from the dead, you're going to find nothing like him. It was um, Jesus who asked this question that I think really brings home what a lot of us are feeling these days. It's found in John 6. From this time, many of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, turned back and no longer followed him. And then Jesus in verse 67, you do not want to leave me too, you, uh, you do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. <clears throat> Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Here's a modern translation. Well, I've looked everywhere else. And you're better than any of the other options on the buffet. Nothing <coughs> feeds me like you. Nothing fulfills me like you. There's no one who's truthful like you. There's no one who's gentle like you. There's no one who's strong like you. There's, there's just no one like you. You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Don't forget that Jesus isn't just true. He's good. He's beautiful. He's everything. Now, for some of you, you're on the journey, 
And maybe, just maybe, you're starting to see over this series or today that this isn't all just smoke and mirrors, but actually where there's smoke, there might be real fire. And there's something here going on that maybe is beyond what you've encountered, more than meets the eye. And the invitation that's starting to form around you and in you is what actually Paul once wrote. And now you understand it. How do you become a Christian? How do you cross the line of faith? Well, Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth out loud, like you publicly, that Jesus is Lord, I believe what he claimed about himself, not liar, not Satan, not crazy, not unhinged, he is who he is, and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, oh, then you get saved. This is the invitation that's been happening this whole series and is happening at this moment for you to truly see who Jesus is, to see his claims, see his character, see his nature, see his activities, see his, see his, his everything, but also to be convinced of, convinced of the facts. He lived, he died, and he, and he rose again. I'll end with this. I know some of you are going, yeah, but <laughs> that's really interesting and helpful, but I've read a lot of stuff and you know, actually, everyone believed in resurrection 2,000 years ago, or actually, it was a group hallucination, or they just got the wrong tomb, or someone stole the body, or Jesus didn't really die, or, you know, next week, we're going to spend some significant time talking through all the conspiracy theories that on the surface and all across the internet seem to destroy the Christian faith. But when you do your historic work and you understand how history works and you do your homework, you realize very quickly the smoke and mirrors is not the Christian faith. The smoke and mirrors is a lot of the conspiracy stuff. So I want to invite you back to continue to be encouraged in the faith, uh, to continue to be cornered <laughs> and say, well, there's no one better like him, so what am I going to do? Or to continue to wrestle this down to see if Jesus is Lord and to see if Jesus really rose from the dead. So I'm just going to pray for everyone like this. Uh, thanks, I would say, <laughs> Jesus, you're alive. And that you are equal with God, you are God, and you're the only way home, and you're the one who brings life and resurrection and hope and healing and eternal life, all of it. For those who are in and faithful, encourage their faith. For those who've lost sight of you, your beauty and your truth, begin to show them everything else is hollow. Remind them not only of the historical fact that, that proves this, also remind them of trust. And lastly, and most significantly, we also pray for all the people around us in this series that are struggling and wondering and trying to understand with the facts and bringing their full intellect to the table. Would you also open their minds to the truth? Just be with us, we pray, today. And as we continue this series, in Jesus' name, and we all said together, amen. Look forward to seeing you next week with all the wild conspiracies uh, about this conversation. See you then.